very much for the opportunity to present here. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, some of our recent work in um, how we're studying this tissue compartmentalization of the immune response. And we're doing it, um, well, we started out really doing it in a, in a virus model, but we've been getting into now models of autoimmune diabetes. So I'm going to be talking about some of the work we have in showing you data from mouse models and then where we're going and how we're going to translate this now into humans um, now that I've joined the, the new um, Center for Translational Immunology. So just to give you some brief um, background and overview, um, let's see, is this a little a pointer? Okay. So um, if we think about the different T cell subsets in the periphery and T cell differentiation, um, so you basically start with the naive T cell, which emerges from the thymus um, when it encounters its antigen and uh, presented by antigen presenting cell and the appropriate co-stimulation, it will become activated. Uh, will proliferate and differentiate into a population of effector T cells. Um, these effector T cells are what are going to mediate this uh, T cell mediated immune response. I'm going to be focusing mostly on CD4, uh, almost exclusively actually on CD4 T cells. So these effector cells secrete many different kinds of cytokines to recruit and activate another additional immune cells for antigen clearance. And then after days or a few days or weeks in vivo, most of these effector cells will then die. Um, there can also be um, other effector populations, like regulatory T cell populations, which can either uh, emerge from naive cells or um, from the thymus. I won't really be talking too much about these, but just as kind of another, I mean, people can think of them as another effector type population or as a special um, regulatory population. Um, the, uh, most of these effector cells will die, but there is a small population of primed or effector cells which will go on and survive as long-lived memory T cells through mechanisms that are not fully understood. Um, but memory T cells can emerge then after this initial antigen encounter. They now are resting cells. They're no longer um, in this kind of activated state. They're not actively producing cytokines. But these memory cells will live um, for up to a lifetime of individual. And in humans, they've been, no, they've been detected up to decades after initial antigen exposure. So they'll last for years, and they undergo a slow turnover or homeostasis. When they encounter the antigen again, now they will mediate the re what's known as the recall response, which is that faster, stronger, um, better uh, immune response. That's, that's the basis of immunological memory. And so these different subsets on the naive and memory really coexist in an individual. Um, you acquire more memory as you acquire more antigen exposure. And the lifespan, so naive cells can be long-lived. Defector cells are relatively short-lived from days to weeks. Memory cells can last years or a decade. And then the recall response, though, of memory cells is really up to really only hours. It's almost an immediate recall. So there's a couple of interesting features, then, of memory cells that we've been very interested in. And um, we've been studying for some time how memory T cells will mediate uh, the immune memory response. And what are the features of memory T cells that enable them to do this? And then how can we boost memory T cells so in vaccines? And then at the other side, how do we um, suppress these memory T cells in autoimmunity? Okay. So the main distinguishing features of memory cells are one, it's just sort of their, their activation requirements. And I just sort of outlined this just in a cartoon. So memory cells can be distinguished from naive cells based on phenotypic markers. And in the mouse, the one that's the most reliable and that we, we use mostly is CD44, the adhesion marker. It's upregulated on mouse memory and it's expressed at a lower level in naive cells. It's also upregulated on effector cells. In human, a better marker is the CD45RO isoform of CD45, um, cell surface tyrosine phosphatase, and CD45RA is expressed by naive cells. Um, so naive cells um, require two signals, a T cell receptor and CD28 co-stimulatory signals to be activated. The APC that primarily activate um, naive cells or dendritic cells, and within 12 to 24 hours, the main cytokine or the earliest cytokine they'll produce will be IL-2. By contrast, memory cells don't have an absolute requirement for CD20 co-stimulation. They will use it when provided with it, but they don't need it for their early effector functions. They can also be activated by a broader range of antigen-presenting cells. They're not confined to dendritic cells, although they'll activate memory cells as fine. They can be activated by resting B cells, by endothelial cells in the tissues, and by macrophages. And the timing of the activation is much more rapid. So within hours, you'll see a population of memory cells, CD4, CD8, producing effector cytokines. 
and they don't, they produce IL-2 rapidly, but they also produce uh, rapid interferon gamma. Most of the memory cells in our models that we're, we're looking at are producing rapid, um, high levels of interferon gamma very rapidly. Uh, also TNF-alpha, there are TH2 type memory cells that are a little more rare, that can produce rapid IL-4 and IL-5. So it's really this very rapid recall, rapid functional response, which is a hallmark of the memory response. And they also respond to lower antigens, the more easily activatable. The other, um, main distinguishing feature of memory cells is where they are in the body. And this is something that's been interested in us um, for quite some time. Um, in that naive cells are primarily confined to lymphoid tissue. So you'll find them circulating in the blood and in the lymph node and spleen. But you don't find them in significant quantities in other tissues. Okay, their main job, because they get activated by dendritic cells in these lymphoid tissues. So they're, not gonna, they're really not going to circulate other places. And they also express this lymph node homing receptor, CD62L, um, which directs them um, to the high endothelial venules so they go through from the blood to the lymph. However, memory cells can exist in many different types. And the more we look, the more subsets we find. Now, about 11 years ago, or now 12 years ago, it's 2011, um, um defined two subsets of memory cells in human peripheral blood that are distinguished by these homing receptors. So some have the, the lymph node homing receptor, another population doesn't. Called the CD62 a low population effector memory and the other population central memory. Um, and these are circulating in the blood. But it looks like it, now it's becoming beginning to emerge that there's many, many more subsets um, that differ in function and phenotype. But basically, you can divide these into two. The effector memory is a primary subset in non-lymphoid tissue. And memory cells are everywhere. There's huge populations in the lung, they're in the bone marrow, they're in the liver, there's huge populations in the gut. And there's many, many memory cells in the skin, um, probably half of, I mean, it, it, we're, we only look in the blood when we sample human T cells, but actually there, there's billions in the skin, there's billions in the, in the gut. Um, there's also even some in the CNS. So memory cells are really everywhere. Um, and the idea is that memory cells are going to go to these different tissues, so there's sort of sentries at the, um, where, where pathogens may enter. Um, and they can also, though, do, uh, do damage, though, in, in autoimmunity and have transplantation. So we have these different memory cells. So that's the other main feature of memory. And what we're trying to do is understand how these rapid functional features and the tissue distribution is going to control the memory immune response as we know it. So, um, and just to, to give you an overview, um, so there is, a, in humans, there's a gradual accumulation of memory phenotype cells over time. So, Clinically, it's important to study memory cells because when we think of, when we model things in mice, we're always using young mice, which are about 70 to 80% memory cells. But all the treatments and anything you're going to adapt in adults, adults are about, anybody over age, well, 35 to 40, is about 40 to 50% memory cells. So we're, and then by the time, now there's a stabilization, so between like age 30 and 70, there's kind of a stable about half memory cells. And then after that, there's some dysregulation. And then it becomes, uh, after age 60 to 70, you'll have mostly memory cells, like 70 to 80%. Um, but so adults are mostly memory cells. Um, so if you want to model any kind of immunotherapy, you really have to know how it's affecting memory cells, because that's going to be a major population in, in the adult or translational um, therapy. Um, adults have memory cells um, specific for viruses previously encountered. So any a uh, healthy adult uh, will probably have some sort of memory against EBV, CMV, and flu. Pretty much everybody here has been exposed to flu, whether you've been vaccinated or not. And you'll have memory T cells in your circulation that are specific for flu. Um, now, memory T cells generated from pathogen encounter can cross-react with either alloantigens, this has been found in transplantation studies, and also autoantigens. So um, memory cells, are, there's also some degree of cross-reactivity. And memory cells, of course, can accumulate multiple tissue sites, and there's particularly large numbers in the mucosal sites along gut and liver and the skin. So what I'll be talking about and some of the questions that we're asking um, in the lab um, in terms of memory and their, their tissue compartmentalization is, um, to, and again, we're focusing on memory CD4 T cells, is do memory T cells have tissue specificity independent of antigens? So if you have a memory in the lung, or in the gut, is it different uh, than memory that's circulating and does it stay there, does it go? And then, what is the role of tissue-specific memory cells in secondary responses and protective immunity? And I'll show you some of the data from our influenza model. And then, what is the role of tissue-specific homing and autoimmunity? And we've um, 
been developing um, or using a type 1 diabetes, not the NOD model, but a different one, to study um, tissue-specific homing in um, the development of type 1 diabetes. And then how can we, how can we bring all of this and analyze it in humans? Because uh, that's our real goal. Okay. So I'll show you our model system that we've been working on for some time to study uh, memory CD4. We've been focusing a lot on memory CD4 cells. Uh, a lot of the studies, the final literature done on memory CD8, they're a lot more numerous. They're a lot easier to study. Um, memory CD4 tend to not be generated as high frequencies, but they're powerful nonetheless, and they seem to control a lot more than we, than we previously thought. So we've been focusing on memory CD4. So what we want to do is have a model where we can track the development of an antigen-specific memory population. Um, and so we'd like to take advantage of T-cell receptor transgenic mice. And the one that we've been using um, has a transgenic coded T-cell receptor. It's called HATCR, or the 6.5 mouse, um, made originally by Harold von Bomer years and years ago now. Um, and it expresses a transgenic coded T-cell receptor specific for influenza hemagglutinin from this um, common uh, influenza strain, which happens to be an H1N1 strain. We're all immune to it. It's a Puerto Rican or, uh, originated virus in 1934, but we are all immune to it. So it's, it's a measle 2 pathogen. Um, but it can cause this a nice, so if you infect mice with this virus, it really recapitulates the, uh, the, the illness, the pathogenesis, and the immune response to it in humans. Um, so the, about 30 to 50% of the T cells in this mouse expresses a transgenic-coded um, T cell receptor. You can't generate memory by just immunizing this mouse or infecting this mouse. Um, there's a numbers problem. There's probably too much uh, T cells in these mice to actually generate a good immune response uh, from the uh, transgene-positive T cells. So we have to do a workaround. So what we do is we, do, we take up the naive cells out of these mice that are specific for hemagglutinin. Um, we we um, activate them with HA peptide and antigen-presenting cells, and we get this effector population. So we do that first step in vitro. And then we transfer the effector population into a mouse host, where they will then we kind of use this as an in vivo um, incubator to generate memory cells, because you can't generate memory in vitro. So we park them in the mouse, and it's either a Balsy congenic mouse or um, a RAG2, a lymphocyte-deficient RAG2-deficient mouse. So then the only T cells in this mouse are memory. and we. Um, and then these cells will develop into a stable population uh, that will last in these mice for their lifetime. So we've recovered these a year and a half later, and you still have this nice population of antigen-specific memory. We generally take them out between six and eight weeks after transfer. And so this mouse, this is a intact mouse with memory cells, um, has, uh, it, it's got all of its, its normal cells, a CD4 T-cell complement, plus a population of HA-specific memory cells. Okay, we've extensively um, uh, validated this model. We show that these memory cells have the phenotype and function of polyclonal in vivo generated memory. And, and then so we can pair it then with in vivo generated memory. And the way we do this is we just infect a Balsy mouse uh, with influenza. We infect them intranasally, just how you would get flu. Um, we allow them to recover, and then we have mice that have CD4 T cells on a population of those who are specific for flu. But just to show you the course of infection um, with flu, I mean, depending on the dose, that the way we monitor the infection is by weight loss. So depending on the dose of virus, mice will lose weight. And this is a sublethal infection. They'll lose weight up to 30% of their body weight uh, in about a week after infection, and then they recover. And if you look at the viral titers in the lung, and influenza is confined to the lung, so if you look at the viral titers, they kind of peak between day four and five post-infection, and then the immune response does clear. So um, in this mouse, we would have monitored the illness and the recovery, and then a couple of months later, there are these persisting memory cells that we can analyze. And so we compare all of our transgenic memory then to the polyclonal memory generated here. Feel free to interrupt me if you have questions at any point. Um, so just to show you what the memory cells look like, so this is now in the HA-specific system, that the memory cells, and these are in the intact valve C, where we transferred in the prime cells into the intact valve C mouse. And what happens, they develop into stable memory that's about 1% or less of the total T CD4 T cell complement. And so these memory cells are heterogeneous, they're in the spleen, they're in the lung, they're in the liver. This is percentage. So it's actually, by numbers, most are in the spleen followed by lung, and then there's only uh, a small number in the liver. There's also in the lymph nodes, so they're all over. And this um, is percent of T total T cells? These are percent of CD4 T cells. 
you know, CD4. So it's about less than 1%. And then, um, so we've shown that these have rapid interferon gamma production, and I'll show you it in subsequent um, data. But if we compare it to polyclonal memory that we generate from flu, and, and the way we, we can visualize a polyclonal memory is by doing an LE spot. So we're doing a flu-specific LE spot, looking at rapid interferon gamma production. And you can see that they're in the lung and the spleen, with more in the spleen, just like we find um, in, the, in the transgenic, and that they're not, you don't get a flu-specific memory uh, response in mock infected mice. So these are young mice. They don't have memory to flu. They've never seen flu. The ones that have memory to flu have memory in both the lung and the spleen. So, um, and it is a rapid interferon down memory. Um, and then what about their ability to protect these memory cells? So, uh, we've done a lot of characterization of this, but I didn't want to really focus too much on the flu uh, system, but we've done, um, we, we've shown that if mice have memory cells and we give them a lethal infection, so this is the only memory they have to flu is the memory CD4 cells, and we challenge them with a lethal, lethal dose that will um, kill all of the naive mice, the mice with memory CD4 T cells, and these are memory in all the different tissues, are protected. Um, so that these memory cells do mediate this kind of enhanced protection, what you want from memory cells. And we found that the mechanism, and we've characterized the mechanism for this, um, that it's, it's probably due to interferon gamma. Um, but I, what I wanted to focus on um, is these differences between the tissue, the memory cells in different tissue sites. So we know that if you have memory cells, you have them all over, then you are protected from lethal infection with flu. But are there specific subsets that give you um, protection? And how do these different subsets, say in the lung and the spleen, which would be important in flu, um, are they different in the way they behave in vivo and the way they protect? So we've looked at, um, we focus then on lung memory cells and spleen memory. So we know that in the, um, the transfer system, this is not an infection system, we just put the prime cells in the mouse and they end up residing um, and taking a residence in either spleen or lung and all these different tissues. But we also find this when we infect the mouse as we saw with influenza. And so what we've done is we've looked at these cells um, closely, mostly using the transgenic system because we have more to study. Um, in the polyclonal system, we get very, very low numbers. Um, so what we've done is, is looked at these both phenotypically and functionally. And if you look at the phenotype between, this is now HA-specific memory in the lung versus the spleen, and we look at a variety of markers that um, are used to distinguish uh, naive memory in different subsets, we find a few key phenotypic changes. Um, they're both resting memory cells, so they're, they're low, they don't really express CD25 IL-2 receptor. They upregulate CD44, so that's a hallmark of memory. Now, in terms of CD62L, now as expected, the lung memory have more of that effector memory, CD62L low population, whereas spleen are heterogeneous. And so that's pretty typical we get with the different memory populations. You have the two types of memory uh, circulating in the blood and the spleen, and most of these effector memory in the peripheral sites. But another difference was in CD69 expression. CD69 is an early activation marker in T cells, but we find that it's upregulated on this population of lung memory cells, more so than in the spleen. Um, spleen, you don't get a really a lot of CD69 upregulation. And this is also a feature of memory cells in the gut, memory cells in the skin. And it may be because um, one hypothesis is that you're exposed to some um, to the outside, to, to, micro, to microbes and such in the gut and also in the lung, probably in the skin, and so you have kind of this transient sort of semi-activated state, but it's really not known the role of CD69. And CD11A, it's just a little bit higher, although I don't have the numbers here, um, in the lung and the spleen. So there's some subtle phenotypic differences in between lung and spleen memory. In terms of their function, um, both the HA-specific and polyclonal, we looked at the different cytokine profile, we looked at all different kinds of cytokines, but the ones that are produced by these memory cells, both in response to infection or generated in the transfer system, produce mostly interferon gamma and IL-2 are the major cytokines. Spleen memory, there's similar proportion. This is rapid. This is within, this is a, an intracellular cytokine uh, staining assay um, of the HA-specific memory, which we've now recalled in vitro with HA peptide. And this is within six hours. So this is why they don't all, they aren't all rapid cytokine producers, but we find similar proportions of rapid interferon gamma production producers and rapid IL-2 producers. 
However, lung memory, they don't really have a lot of IL-2 producers, and it's mostly interferon gamma. And it's the same thing in the polyclonal. If you look at spleen memory, there's similar proportions of interferon gamma producers and IL-2 producers, and the lung, it's more effector-like, so it's more producing more interferon gamma, less IL-2. And if you look at the proliferation, that, that actually the, the IL-2 production holds true with the proliferation, is that these tissue memory cells, these lung memory cells, um, don't proliferate as well. So this is, again, the HA-specific memory cells, which we CFSE labeled, and then we've stimulated them with HA peptide and APC in vitro, and then we've just followed the kinetics. And you can see the spleen memory, most of them undergo proliferation. This is percent proliferated. And there is this lag. There's a population, really, of lung memory cells that don't proliferate very well at all. And the ones that do aren't really proliferating as quickly or as well. So that's consistent with the IL-2 production. That tissue memory really are more effector, and they're not really going to proliferate and divide, uh, at least in these in vitro. At least we're looking at the functional capacity. So they seem to have some, some functional differences as well. But by far the most striking difference we found between lung and spleen memory was in their homing properties. So we asked, um, does a memory cell that go to the lung reside? And again, this is in this infection-free system where we, we're simply priming the cells and, and seeing where they go and reside long term. Um, do they have intrinsic homing capacity? So if we take out the lung memory cells and we take out the spleen memory cells and we just infuse them into a, a, a congenic balsy host, an unmanipulated host, and we just ask, where do they go? Do they go anywhere different? Do they have any different homing properties? Um, and we harvest multiple tissues from these host mice one week or three weeks later. What we find is that the spleen memory go to multiple tissues, and, and I'm just showing you examples here. They go to the spleen, they go to lung, they go to liver, and, and, and this is a mediastinal lymphoma. This is a lymphoma on the drain, you know, around the uh, lung. And you can find it one week later and also at three weeks later. They're a little more dispersed, but they're there. However, the lung memory, either one week or three weeks later, they, we only recovered them from the lung. We didn't recover the lung memory T cells from any, significantly from any other tissue in these mice. So the lung memory cells seem to have an internal zip code. They seem to know that they came from the lung and that they went back to the lung. Well, that was one hypothesis. The other hypothesis is either they go directly there or um, they, they go there and somehow they're retained there. So they're going everywhere, but they're getting you know, retained in the lung. So over time, we only see them in the lung. So we wanted to distinguish between that characteristic, that, whether those properties, whether it was retention or this tropism and retention or some combination. So to address this, we did a parabiosis experiments. And this was done in collaboration with Leo LaFrancois at University of Connecticut, um, who has really uh, optimizes parabiosis um, experiments. So what parabiosis is, is you actually sew two mice together. It's literally you know, two mice that have a shared circulation. What you do is you, you, you almost create, like a, it's like a skin graft in the abdomen where you create an astomosis and shared circulation between these two mites. So what we can do is we actually look, can look at in vivo uh, migration of these memory cells. Um, we do our transfer. So what we did, so we were able to ask, so the question was, are the lung memory that are getting there, or the spleen memory, are they retained, or is this population can freely recirculate? And if they recirculate, do they only go to the lung? Um, so they might be leaving the lung and just keep going back to the lung. Um, so what we did is we did our first initial homing experiment. We put the spleen memory into one mouse, or the lung memory from our, um, from our memory host mouse. And then what we did is we let that equilibrate for seven days. So now we had a mouse with only lung memory, memory in the lung, and a mouse with memory everywhere. And then we took that mouse and we, um, they underwent surgery and parabiosis experiments uh, and multiple pairs. And then we left these guys together for about eight days, any longer, and they tend to disperse all over. Um, so eight days is really the optimal time for leaving them together. And then what we did was harvested all the tissues from the host mouse, the original host, and the parabiome partner. Okay. So, so, yeah. When we say they, they disperse all over, what are, what are dispersing the T cells? Yeah, the, so we're following the T cells. We're tracking specifically the T cells. Uh, and actually the T cells, the memory T cells. So we're really tracking this population, the populations of memory T cells that we put in there. Either spleen or... No, 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 I understand, but you're saying that you, they disperse after into multiple tissues? Right, so if you have a circulating T cell population, what happens is because you're, you're putting in the small population which you have marked, 
But um, after, if they are freely dispersing, after about a week or two, they will eventually dilute in all the different tissues of two mice, and you won't be able to detect them. It's not like they're not there. I mean, that's what, what Leo and his lab has worked out. If you, if you have a, a dispersing memory population, after two weeks, they'll be so dilute that it'll just be, you'll have little populations in all the different tissues. So is that different than what you saw on the previous slide, where there seemed to be specific honing, or is this just... Well, that's what I'm looking at okay. here. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just explaining why we left them together for eight days. Okay. So it's because if they were dispersing, they would have dispersed. But, but I'll show you okay. that they don't always. Okay. So... Um, so what we did is then we looked for these memory cells in different tissues. And so the memory cells that we're following are on the congenic markers. So if you look at what happens, this is after eight days, we looked at the tissue of the host and the partner mouse. And if you look in, and this is just the major tissues, we looked at all the different nodes and such. Um, so the spleen memory, they went to multiple tissues in the host mouse, and they also went to multiple tissues in the partner mice. So you can see that the spleen-derived memory were able to disperse and they were able to leave the host and go to the partner. Okay, so this is a freely circulating memory population. However, the lung memory, we only detected them in the lung of the original host mouse. We didn't detect them in any other tissues of the host mouse or any of the tissues of the partner mouse. And we did leave these guys together for three weeks, and we still only found the memory cells in the lung of the host mouse that they didn't circulate. So this what the way we interpret this is this is a retentive population. This is a population that's retained in the lung. It doesn't leave because we didn't find we didn't find the circulating population either in any tissue of this mouse or the partner mouse. And if you look at the numbers, the lung, um, the lung memory were only found. I mean, if we looked at the percent distribution, so what we did is we counted all of the cells from all the cells um, from each tissue and then added that up for the total number of cells and this gives you the percent distribution in each tissue. And so you can see the spleen-derived memory were nicely dispersed in different tissues, but the lung were only in the lung of the host mouse and didn't go anywhere else. So what this um, tells us is that there's this population of truly lung-retentive memory cells that are not going anywhere. And we're, we've been now, our goal is really to try to find a mechanism for this and to also define, um, so the, you know, it's interesting, spleen memory do get to the lung, but they're really not a retained population because if we do leave the spleen pairs together, then the cells do eventually disperse. If the spleen memory that would go into the lung remains in the lung, then over time we should expect an accumulation of cells in the lung, but we don't find that we find that the spleen just completely disperse. And if you look here, um, so we've looked at the feet, so it seems like there's at least two populations that we might find in the lung. One population that freely will go into the lung and go out of the lung, and the other population that gets into the lung and stays in the lung. So you kind of have a resident population and then a tourist population, kind of like New York City in the holidays. You have people who live here and people who are just passing through. Um, and so, they, so we think they have different phenotypes, these passing through memory. And if you look at just CD11A, uh, which is uh, the LFA1, it's an adhesion marker, can, we always find that in the spleen, the level of, seat of memory cells, this is gated on the memory cells, it's lower. So this is a level, this is the MFI, in the spleen is lower than in the lung. So it's always a bit higher in the lung. But in the parabiont, and this represents the circulating memory cells by definition because it got into that other mouse you can see that the circulating population has for both the spleen and the lung has a lower level of CD11A. And compare it to the tissue retentive memory, which was in the lung, that has a much higher level of CD11A. So that there, this could be controlled, and we're looking into this, in part by some sort of adhesion. So the higher level of adhesion you have, the more likely, or you're selecting for, this kind of tissue retentive population. Whereas the circulating populations are marked by this lower C11A. Okay. And so, um, so what we're, so j just, to, just to summarize this part, um, so we have these populations, this is what I would call the tissue retentive in blue, and kind of this population that'll come back and recirculate to the lung, but really isn't retained in the lung. And then you have this population that could come from other peripheral sites that also can come to the lung, but again, not be retained from the lung. And then you probably have this population also that just circulates constantly from all these sites. And so what we're trying to do now is to define the properties of these different memory cells and what controls um, them being a tissue retainer versus um, a circulating 
memory cells. And I won't go to, to all this. Um, I'm happy to talk to people about it. We've done some microarrays. We've found some candidates for chemochiroceptors and other adhesion markers that may be controlling this. Um, but, but what we also wanted to find out was what the, was the physiological role of these tissue resident versus non-resident. So you have these cells that are getting into the lung, but do they have any different roles in protection? Does it matter? whether you have a cell going into the lung from the outside or it retained in the lung. Does it matter because if you have an infection, is getting to the lung sufficient? Or do you have to be a certain type of memory cell? So this system that we had really gave us a unique opportunity to ask this question. If you have a mouse with HA-specific memory cells or flu-specific memory only in the lung, is it more protected than a mouse that has HA-specific memory that are circulating, that we know can freely circulate? So that's what we did. We had uh, we infected a naive mouse, a mouse where we had transferred spleen memory, HA-specific memory, or a mouse where we had transferred lung memory in and let it equilibrate so it was only in the lung. And we infected them, and we looked at the morbidity of infection, so that would be the weight loss, and we also did a kinetics and looked at the viral titers and viral clearance. And what we found was that, this is a mock infected, that both naive and recipients of spleen memory cell got very sick from this flu infection. And so they lost similar uh, amount of weight. However, only the, the mice with lung memory cells were really protected from the morbidity. They, they got sick. They lost a little weight, but not, not really that sick. Um, and if you looked at the lung viral clearance, you can see as early as day two, lung memory um, have cleared compared to spleen or naive. So naive, I mean, they, they just don't have memory cells in them. And that, that, that the clearance was much more rapid in mice with lung memory cells. Um, so they not only... Um, were able to protect morbidity, but they were also able to protect um, in terms of viral clearance, and then mice also recovered. Um, so what this suggests is that it does matter um, what type of memory you have in terms of protection, that these lung retentive memory cells seem to mediate this optimal protective uh, responses. So what about, um, but do the spleen get to the lung? Um, so we looked at, this is now six days post-infection, so this would be at this time point here, where lung have cleared, um, they're doing much better. Um, so we looked at this time point, we looked at other time points too, I'll show you from one time point, to see if the spleen-derived memory had gone to the lung, and really, we also wanted to know, had the lung-derived memory gotten out of the lung after the infection, because now they were effector cells. Yeah. Did you look at day zero, in other words, I, I don't remember, you, and you probably really know this, but you know, is it like, as you've done in the cartoon, there are many more memory cells in the lung and lung? Yeah, so is it is it a numbers thing? Um, we don't think it is because there's actually, if you count up the number of memory cells that you get from a lung, like if we transfer in the lung memory cells, um, they're about equivalent in terms of the numbers right before infection. But there's actually more memory cells here because they go all over. We actually recover a slightly lower numbers of total memory cells from these lung mice. It's not, it's not really a number study yet. Um, what we found, and this is now again, uh, here's the memory, this is the HA-specific memory population after infection, and you can see that the lung memory, it's in the lung, but they really, um, they haven't expanded that much. Um, I mean, I'm not showing you beforehand, and they're not really that significantly in the spleen, whereas the spleen-derived memory get fine. They're getting to the lung, and we CFSE label them, they expand just fine, and they're also in the spleen. And if you just look at total numbers, the spleen memory far exceed the lung memory. And again, the lung memory is still mostly in the lung and the spleen. So just like when I showed you earlier that lung didn't proliferate a lot, and they're not really expanding, you can see that the spleen far outnumber in expansion um, the lung memory, but yet the lung memory are protecting. So we're, we're looking into this mechanism of why are the lung protecting better. We think it probably has to do with something very, very early in infection or where the lung memory are in the lung. And we're, doing, uh, we're setting up to do some imaging of that to see where in the lung the lung memory are versus the spleen. And just to show you, they protect from lethal challenge. That's the ultimate test with flu. The spleen, in fact, um, they make it a little bit worse. So there could be an immunopathology component to some memory subsets. Some are protective. And some, in fact, uh, really muck up the works. They can cause some immunopathology. And so, again, we're looking into to mechanisms of that. So just to show you where we're going with this, um, with the flu study, um, as I showed you, a subset of lung memory cells exhibit lung tissue tropism. They can go to the lung and they can be retained in the lung. Um, they do mean enhanced viral clearance and protection compared to spleen memory. Even though they have a broad homing, they can get there. They're not really protecting. Um, so 
and again, the, the, the role of T cells in protection, particularly to flu, I mean, protection to flu, as you know from vaccines, is really associated with antibodies, not associated with T cells. Um, because everybody has memory T cells in their circulation, but yet not necessarily protected. And it could be that, that we're really not looking and targeting at the right memory T cells, that we're really just kind of quantitating these spleen memory, which is really not doing anything. Um, and then we, the memory cells within lung tissue, they don't accumulate or migrate to the spleen. They, they seem to just stay in there, and, and they're doing their job in the lung. Um, so these are you know, current, our current and future studies with these mechanisms and the markers and, um, and also the mechanisms of protection. Um, but what, when we found this um, kind of tissue tropism and protection and tissue residence, it made us um, think, well, well, could this be kind of a generalized phenomena to a lot of tissue-specific um, immune responses? So when you're generating effector cells at a tissue site or you have a tissue-specific immune response, are you going to then generate memory that are targeted back to that particular tissue? And so it, it brought us then to, the, to ask similar questions in a diabetes model. Okay? So if you think of the same kind of scheme in the terms of type 1 diabetes, which is autoimmune diabetes, um, and a lot is not known here. So you can, we know that you can you get naive T cell activation, you get effector cells that are islet specific, these will go into the islets and cause diabetes. Um, but then what happens to these effector cells? Um, do they become, well we know that probably a lot of them die, um, will they survive as memory T cells? Um, and will they, do these memory T cells play any role in the disease? Is there an islet reactive memory T cell pool? And could these then uh, mediate this recurrent autoimmunity, which would be important in transplantation? So in either pancreas transplantation or islet transplantation. So, um, or, if, or, or islet regeneration. So if you have you know, do you have these long-term memory populations um, and are they going to be pathogenic um, in a recurrent disease? And, I mean, there's some evidence for, for this. So, um, they're circulating, I mean, if you look at the individuals with type 1 diabetes and you look at them by, by uh, Tetramers, Ellie Spot, and Jerry Jer Nepom's on this, David Hassler, you find these circulating islet reactive T cells um, with memory phenotypes. But the problem is that you can only find these if you expand out your population. When you expand out T-cell populations, they automatically adopt memory phenotypes. Um, so, and the question is, are these islet reactive memory uh, derived from these pancreas infiltrating effector cells? Are they deriving from the cells that had actually caused the disease, or is it just sort of a, a just a peripheral activation? Um, there is evidence for current autoimmunity in pancreas and islet transplantation. Um, this kind of I mean, the original uh, study with recurrent autoimmunity was in the pancreas um, transplants into twins. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that. Sutherland, where he found that um, that you had a, a pancreas transplantation into one, one twin had diabetes, the other one didn't, and, and you actually had recurrent autoimmune destruction of islets uh, in pancreas. Um, but in, in actually the recent couple of years, there's been more um, examples of recurrent autoimmunity in pancreas transplantation, although it's still fairly rare, um, and it's not known why people reject their pancreas, um, but there's some evidence that there's recurrent, um, that there's actually reactivation of autoreactive cells in a very small subset of patients when it's been examined. And so do memory T cells mediate recurrent autoimmunity? And that naive memory cells have different activation requirements, so are memory cells resistant to immunosuppression? So, if you're treating this, do you have to target now memory cells and, and really think differently about current autoimmunity? So those are just sort of the questions that are circulating around re regarding uh, type 1 diabetes and memory cells. And so one thing that we, we've been looking at, and we're very interested um, in this kind of tissue homing question, and in particular, we're, we're very interested in, in really defining, do you, do you get autoreactive memory? Can you get autoreactive memory from pancreas infiltrating effector cells, or do they just all die? Um, which is quite likely um, that, that they could die. And then if you do get memory, um, are there intrinsic homing capacities of memory derived from a tissue homing effector cell versus a circulating effector cell? So really, how are these memory generated? Um, and so to address this question, we again um, went to our favorite T-cell transgenic mouse, which is a HATCR mouse that expresses a T-cell receptor for influenza hemagglutinin. And now we match it up with the, um, a mouse that expresses um, the hemagglutinin protein by the insulin promoter, so it's expressed in islets. 
And um, it's been shown um, that if you transfer naive cells into lymphopenic mice, um, either uh, the insulin HA on a RAG2 knockout background or an irradiated bowel C, that they'll develop diabetes quite rapidly, uh, that you'll get ephedra cells that go to the pancreas and you'll get diabetes. Um, and so we use this model to actually um, isolate different effector populations and then look at their propensity and capacity to develop into memory. And this just shows you that they get diabetes um, after you transfer the cells up to nine days. It's very, very quick. And, um, and this shows you that we can track the cells from the lymph node, the spleen, and the pancreas. So most of the cells, the effector cells, go into the spleen and the pancreas. Um, and these are HA-specific. And again, we looked at their phenotypes, and we found similar um, some differences. So again, the cells that go to the pancreas are CD62 low. These are the effector cells. They're CD69 positive, and they're high for CD11A and high for CD44. Um, whereas the spleen cells are they're CD62 low and high. They don't really express CD69, and they're somewhat lower for CD11A. They're also CD44. So there's some subtle differences again in the effector cells um, that infiltrate the pancreas and the spleen. So then we asked, um, well, what about these cells in the pancreas versus the cells in the spleen? Can they develop into memory? So we wanted to look at their intrinsic capacity to develop memory. So because we're using an HA-specific system, which really isn't an, I mean, an autoantigen to, a, to a, an intact mouse, what we did is we took out these cells from the spleen and pancreas of the diabetic uh, insulin HA mouse that we had generated through the transfer. And then we put them into an intact Balfour mouse, which doesn't have HA antigen. So we can look at the intrinsic capacity of these cells to develop into memory, so either spleen memory or pancreas. And then we can ask, can they develop into memory? And if so, where does the memory lodge? Where does it reside? Okay, and we looked at this four weeks post-transfer. Okay. And so um, we find very, we're really de dealing with very small populations here because it's in vivo generated ephedra cells and then we transfer them in. Um, but what we found um, in, in the experiments that we've done is that the spleen, the splenic ephedra cells, and again, these are HA-positive cells that from the diabetic mouse, we find them in the spleen and the lymph node, but we really don't find them in the pancreas. And again, this is in the intact biopsy mouse. Um, so we really find them where we might expect to find them, in the spleen and, and the lymph node. However, if we look at the pancreatic ephedra cells, so these are the pancreas ephedra cells, now we put them into a mouse that doesn't have HA antigen, so it's an antigen-free mouse. We find them in the spleen, the lymph node, and now we do find them in the pancreas. And not only that, but we find it's actually, because these cells get in, we find um, also some other, some endogenous cells as well. But, um, the, but the cells are getting into the pancreas. So it seems like, um, in terms of generation of, that, that these pancreas infiltrating memory can develop, these pancreas infiltrating ephedra cells can develop into memory. And that memory may have a propensity to go back to the pancreas. So there is sort of a homing memory that's developed from some of these tissue-specific immune responses. So in, a, in a, a person with type 1 diabetes, if they develop memory or some sort of uh, T-cell memory, it may be more likely to go back to, a, to an island. Um, and so we're trying to now uh, characterize these and see what's different about these memory versus these memory, whether we can have markers and, and try to block it. So, um, so it looks like in terms of generation of memory that naive cells you'll get priming and then the priming in the lymphoid tissue, but then these primed cells go into peripheral non-lymphoid sites. And these prime cells can either become memory cells in lymphoid tissue or memory cells in non-lymphoid tissue. And we think that, uh, at least there are studies with lung memory cells, that these memory T cells in the tissue, it's kind of this further differentiation state, and it's kind of this end-stage memory population. So if you're looking at just homeostasis and where do T cells end up, that they may just all end up in the tissues and then ultimately die there. Um, and so. Uh, and then where these come from and what signals that some of these prime cells have to become memory. And these are, these are big questions that we want to work out. And so I'd just like to, to end then to, to tell you where we're bringing some of these and taking these questions to look at um, similar questions in humans. Um, and in, in, in terms of analysis of human memory T cells in type 1 diabetes and transplantation, we've um, this is a JDRF initiative. They've been interested um, in recent years in memory T cells because of uh, the concerns about memory cells in pancreas transplantation, islet transplantation, potential islet regeneration that you have these persisting memory cells. So through a JDRF initiative, um, uh, and 
my lab and, and some other groups were, were all kind of getting together and forming a consortium to look at this uh, and answer some basic questions from uh, different patient populations. And so the questions that we're asking are, are autoreactive memory cells quiescent in long-term diabetes and reactivated in pancreas transplantation? And there's other groups that are going to be looking at this in islet transplantation. Um, and is there a subset of memory cells that's resistant to immunosuppression? So that would be the concern. And so what we're going to do is, um, and we're doing this also in collaboration with Peter Heger at Mount Sinai, who's very good um, at developing different LE, very sensitive uh, LE spot assays to look at antigen-specific responses in the human. And one of the things in, in diabetes is a lot of these, um, for detecting autoreactive T cells, it mostly relies on the right HLA type. So it really limits the, the patient population you can study. So with Peter, we're going to be developing um, an LE spot assay against uh, insulin and some GAD and autoantigens that you can that are kind of broad-based, so that we can use it for all HLA types. And so we're going to be looking at these autoreactive and allo-reactive T cell responses in, in individual type of diabetes and recipients of pancreas and kidney transplants um, in, in our centers. And then um, does the presence of autoreactive memory cells predict a transplantation outcome? So that's the, the real question. Um, that, that's of interest. So we're just starting this and, and get, trying to get this together. So that's yeah. So I was actually working with um, Lloyd Ratner to do some metabolic follow-up on right. these particular patients, and that was actually one of the discussions a year or two ago before we had the immunology uh, episode. Right, right, right. And so, so we actually had one patient, although he was transplanted elsewhere, who just came back yeah. to us now with recurrent type one diabetes. And so I spoke with oh, really? the Minnesota group uh -huh. about how they made that determination because. It didn't really have much following. Right. Antibody status didn't really change, and the determination ultimately was that the kidney biopsy was fine, mm -hmm. so that he didn't protect his kidneys, he got both. Oh, that's And okay. so that, therefore, it must be recurrent type 1. But it was sort of frustrating that we didn't have something that we could actually say was being followed and we could screen these patients because we now have a protocol to be following them. Yeah, for other yeah. things, and we could certainly, you know, what we were looking for, what we needed to collect, and hold that right in. It was just yeah. a couple of years ago, we didn't know what to follow. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's what, what we yeah. look at. Right, I mean, these, auto, these yeah. tests for these autoreactive T cells are just very iffy, and only a few labs can do them. I think it really has to be developed so right. so we yeah. can do it better. So that's what we're trying to do and get together with Peter because he has this great expertise to set this up. So, um, you yeah, know, we've just started talking about it, but JDR did come out with this initiative, so they're very interested in it. So, so we want to um, so you know, see a what we can question. When, they, when pancreatic transplants are done, do they remove the, the Recipients pancreas and well, they put it in, in addition was my recollection. But then they were taking out portions of it and yeah. actually right? They, they, they take a portion out, but I don't think they take the whole thing out. But I think that's an interesting point. I could confirm that with them. I, I don't think they do take it out. Yeah, I mean, I mean sometimes they've taken out a piece because I know we've been doing Dieter here. Or Dieter was gonna be doing some uh, right, weren't you gonna be getting some of the tissue or is that only from the okay. Yeah, or is that only from patients who passed away the pancreas? Okay, yeah, so that we didn't have a good source. Yeah, I don't think they take out much, I mean, if at all. So, so you, would, you would argue that maybe taking out the pancreas, <laughs> the recipient's pancreas, Could might help. reduce the water or not? Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that would have any any bearing on it. Whether, I mean, if they took out the recipient? If they took out the recipient's pancreas and there were, you know, was, if that were the memory, Cells were right, right, if they were coming from the pancreas. Right. Probably by that point, I don't know if there's any, probably the islets are gone by that point, though. Or, right, but, but, but if the memory but cells are I living mean, based there, on right, the, right, you know, right, stuff, the, right. You know, once it's gone, but somehow Right, the pancreas, but yeah, yeah, no, that would be really interesting. I mean, we should, I mean, that's the other thing we want to look at that, and that would be ultimately really good to look at. But so I guess one of, so along those lines, mm -hmm. you know, you know, is there a uh, addressing system, immunologic addressing system, specific for each tissue, or is there overlap? In other words, mm -hmm. I mean, you looked at the lung and then several other um, tissues for the influenza, but <coughs> is it possible that the pancreas shares, you know, adhesion molecules with right, the right. toenail or, or something else? Right, and, right. Um, and, I mean, is that an important question to address? And then also, how would you begin to, to look at you know, it's a very important question to address. So there are some defined chemokine receptors that are associated with certain tissues, like CCR9 in the gut, uh, CCR10 in the in the skin, and so these are associated with some of these. Um, CCR6 a bit in the lung. We have found it to be upregulated in our 
long memory cell CCR6. Um, so that's what we're starting to do is kind of these comparative studies in different tissues to see if you get these common chemokine receptor profiles. So that's one thing that we're, that we're looking at. But certainly CD69 is expressed in a lot of these uh, kind of tissue retentive type of memory cells. We think it may have something to do with the retention. Because CD69 also controls um, sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor, which, which regulates homing and loss <coughs> of lymphocytes. So there could be some common mechanisms here. So yeah, we, we're definitely looking into that. But, and the pancreas is not known whether that has certain you know, specific homing. But we, we have done some microarrays on the infector cells in that just we're still going through all those data. But but, um, but just but we are going to be looking at that, and then just to, to end with what we're doing with human. Um, so human, of course, have all this tissue resonant memory cell. It's obviously very hard to study, especially in the steady state, um, human tissues and their immune cells. So all the studies that are done, say on lung T cells or gut T cells, are um, tissues that have been excised due to disease. So the lung would have been removed because of lung cancer, but you can look at the non-cancerous part. The guts removed because of uh, IBD or something like that. So, so it's really hard to do in steady state, but we've just um, gotten some support to look at these now in, um, in organ donors. So we have a, the questions we want to ask are what are the frequencies, just, just to define the steady state, um, to look now, where are these memory cells? So what's the frequency of memory CD4 and CD8 in lymphoid and non-lymphoid tissue sites? And, and look in, in certain HLA types are the tissue reservoirs of antigen-specific or self-reactive T cells. Um, we're always just looking in the blood. We never really look in the tissue. So we want to just go through and just basic um, characterization of, of T cells in different tissues. And then what are the phenotypic and functional features of memory T cells? And we are focusing initially on mucosal, lung, and intestine because we think there might be some common themes with mucosal tissues versus peripheral versus lymphoid tissue sites. So how are we going to do this? So we've um, started a collaboration with the New York Organ Donor Network. Um, so what we're going to do is um, from organ donors who consent to research, and actually we have a specific protocol in that they're going to also hopefully uh, consent to our specific protocol. We're going to have small parts of multiple tissues that are not going to be used for transplant. So long, all the lymph nodes, so no lymph nodes are ever transplanted. What we want to do is get the, the draining lymph nodes from all the tissues versus the peripheral nodes to compare whether there's any differences. Bone marrow, spleen, liver, probably not going to get much liver, that's usually transplanted. Small, large intestine is not transplanted from donors who consent for research, and we're going to just go through and analyze, do this huge large scale analysis. Um, with, we have all these profiles that we're going to be looking at, and then for the appropriate HLA types, and we're going to have all this information because we're getting it from organ donors. So you get your HLA type, you get the serology, you get all that information. Um, we're going to analyze the distribution in different tissues. Um, and so we're actually just about to start it. And this is, uh, we're going to limit it uh, to sites in Manhattan and, and places we can go to in the middle of the night and get these tissues. Um, they'll be um, the criteria that they're non-HIV cancer-free and 60 years of age or younger. And we will get, attain the age serology and HLA type. So it's really um, a nice uh, way to, to begin to characterize human tissue immunity. And we've just gotten some isolated samples, but just to show you that just the CD69 in human lung versus blood, CD69 is up in human lung and down in blood, um, and there's some other differences in some homing receptors. So this is just that we've just started to do this. Uh, to Harry, my lab is here, uh, is, is, is doing this and, and, and really spearheading this. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge everybody. So um, a lot of this work uh, we started, and um, a lot of the results I'll show you were, were obtained uh, at University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, where I was, until July. And by graduate students and postdoc John Tahar and David Bohm for the flu and Jason Lees for the autoimmunity. Um, and then this is uh, my lab here now at the CCTI. Uh, we are in uh, now this, in the Black Building, soon to be moving to new quarters on the 15th floor of Black Building. So come visit. And um, as Harry's doing the, the human work on human tissues and taking over the autoimmunity project, Damien and the flu. And and then our collaborators from the University of Connecticut. And all the flu studies are through a program um, that we also have with the University of Pennsylvania um, with John Murray. And uh, I also want to thank uh, Megan Sykes, uh, who I know a lot of you know, uh, at the CCTR. So thank you. Thank you very much. Any questions? So what do you think happens in 
and people who have splenectomies or autosplenectomies in terms of their distribution of memory T cells? And you know, do you have circulating populations of cells? And, I mean, when we think of patients, we think of them as being susceptible to bacterial infections. Mm -hmm. Well, you should have still a lot of memory cells. I mean, if you take away the spleen, there's still a lot of memory cells that you've taken away, but they're they don't really need to circulate through the spleen. So you should have a lot of your, I guess it depends at what time, but you should have a lot of your tissue-specific immunity intact. Right, so I guess yeah. what I'm saying is what, in trying to figure out what the different functional mm -hmm. role of the splenic mm -hmm. versus you know, tissue-specific right, right. memory cells are, is there anything that you can glean from the from patients who are splenic-demonized or... Or, or I mean, you might have, um, you know, lower, more susceptible to, to um, systemic viruses because the spleen memory seem to have this, you know, they, they're able to go everywhere and they may play a, better, a more important role in a systemic virus rather than a, a site-specific virus. So that could be, you know, kind of these systemic. Yeah, I guess the, the thing is at least um, here from anecdotal clinical experiences mm -hmm. that the, those patients are sort of susceptible to EBV or, you know, they don't look like they're, you know, susceptible to them. I mean, I don't know, maybe more Yeah, I mean, they do all right, right, because they still have all their T cells, probably because they still have their, their T cell complement everywhere else, and you are trafficking through the nodes and everything. And it's really been shown that memory cells don't need lymphoid tissue at all to either circulate or oh. get activated. So you can, you can put memory cells into a mouse completely devoid of lymphoid tissue and, and splenectomize, and they're fine. The memory cells will mediate a response. So given that, then it's not surprising that, that they're not that susceptible. Yeah. You showed that the long resident um, T cells were protective from either lethal or weight loss in an HIV-infected uh, influenza-infected one possible interpretation that, that you alluded to is that maybe when you don't have those resident T cells, you call up this less specific or exuberant mm -hmm. response that mm -hmm. may bite your lung out while it's yeah. trying to wipe the virus out. Right. So that in a, in, a, in a one sense, one could see the resident cells as protective, not by virtue necessarily or totally of any cell autonomous characteristic, but because they prevent something else from happening, in this case, the unwashed masses coming in and mm -hmm. trying to... Right, right. So that's an example with an exogenous antigen in which you could interpret, at least to some extent, the data as the resident cells are protecting you from a worse fate, which mm -hmm. is to have this... So to what extent is that kind of interpretation possibly relevant to something like an autoimmune process in the pancreas or any other immune disease where the resident cells that we now tend to implicate as being bad guys mm -hmm. are really not the bad guys in the ultimate pathologic sense but are mm -hmm. doing something to this other less specific group of cells mm -hmm. that are in the case of the pancreas coming mm -hmm. in and taking it out or mm -hmm. influencing it or preventing, for example, um, modulating T cells from coming in and support. You understand what I mean? Right, right. No, I think it's very so, interesting. So what right, extent right. have we, or are we right. sort of blaming the disease on the wrong, or at least some aspects mm -hmm. of the disease mm -hmm. on the wrong cell? And maybe mm -hmm. what those guys in the pancreas are doing is somehow preventing regulatory T cells from coming in and quieting. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you understand what I mean. Right, so, or they're, they're, in so other words, any immune response that's happening in that organ, if it's, if it's caught by the tissue resident, they don't proliferate and they just kind of take care of it right. quietly <laughs> and don't kind of call in the forces. I right. mean, that, so I mean, yeah. it's very clear, I think, or at least one good interpretation of your mm -hmm. data with influenza looks mm -hmm. like that may very well be mm -hmm. the case, but I guess what I'm asking is, to what extent is that sort of reciprocal impact relevant in these autoimmune diseases where we just just tend to assume that what's wrong with the pancreas is right. that these bad T cells, these guys that look like they recognize some epitope on the, mm -hmm. on the insulin producing cells are causing the trouble, but maybe that's not the whole story. And 
that uh, there's other mechanisms in play that if we understood those, we could leave the bad guys or the good guys, whatever right, they are, right, right. leave them alone and suppress right. the... I know, yeah, no, I think that's very interesting. And, and in fact, um, but I think that's where, where we really have to look at the tissues in the steady state. So I know there's been some limited studies on pancreas um, through that end pod of yeah. JDRF, and they do find resident T cells in the pancreas. That there are a lot of CD8 T cells. It's not something that you really, and actually we found that in healthy mice too, that we find that you do have this population of T cells in just you know a healthy bowel mice. So maybe looking at those T cells and seeing what they're doing and, and yeah, yeah would be would be really important. Uh, but that's right. Probably we have to start and look now at the tissue and the healthy tissue and see I mean, what they're doing. Well, not to beat this to death, but yeah. it's possible yeah. that in sort of thinking out or at least basing this on sort of classical mm -hmm. models, what you end up doing is knocking off the wrong cell. You know, right. I mean, if you, right. you know, if you, what you might count as an immunologic success at least right. in terms of uh, uh, killing a certain type of T cell, that may actually exacerbate the the disease. You certainly would have that as an effect in your lung model. You right. took out, you didn't really know what those guys were doing there. You said, well, let's get rid of these, because they're, right. you know, and the next thing you know, your lung is full of bad guys. And it would be the same thing with transplantation. I think the, 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 the thought is that any cells that are getting in there are bad. Right. And, maybe, you know. Maybe that's not. Maybe not the case. Maybe you want a little bit of benign infiltration that's going to then protect the, the real massive pathogenic infiltration. So, yeah, yeah, these are really interesting ideas. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thank you very much.